morning, Heaven. What a beautiful day. We just thank you so much. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for each person that is here and um, represents um, families. And Lord, today, as um, Chuck shares with us, we just pray that your spirit will speak through him, that you will open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. Our children are so precious to us, and um, we want to be raising them for you. And Lord, we just ask that today and throughout this week that um, you will help us to learn the things that you would have for us. And Father, if there is somebody that needs to be here, we pray that you will bring them here. And also, if there's something that um, Chuck has planned that you want him to say something different, then we ask that you would put those words in his mouth. So, Father, thank you for your presence here and for your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we'll just get started, and um, thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. I remember as a little kid that we were playing as my dad was working and my dad was chomping at a bunch of grass and limbs and, and kind of a clearing a field area and little Chucky, that's what I was called when I was a little guy, little Chucky was there playing, probably pretending to help but probably getting in the way and I remember at that moment my dad said run and my dad went running by me and my dad said run and guess what I did? No, I kind of sat there and then I was covered with wasps and stung all over. And then guess what I did? <laughs> Ran to my dad <laughs> with wasps coming after me. You know what's interesting to me is, is that I remember at that point is that when I didn't know why to run, I didn't run. And then as soon as I was in pain, I needed my dad. I needed him really bad. And what's interesting for me and, and probably a thought that I want to get into our brains is that I want to think throughout this week about kids that are running that are in pain. Um, I'm an administrator, I'll, I'll be blunt with that. Most of my time I can do clean hand work. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? My hands are hardly calloused at all. And that's kind of embarrassing because somehow in my life I turned into an office boy. And even my job at Project Patch as executive director, I'm not the person that's with the kids all the time. I travel to the youth ranch once a month. I spend quite a bit of time at our family program, and I spend quite a bit of time traveling around um, doing this sort of thing. But my hands are, are kind of pristine. And one night I was at our youth ranch on my monthly visit, and my time there at the youth ranch is, you know, interacting with the kids as much as possible, hanging out with the staff, but it's really not this, if I'm there or not there, it doesn't change a whole lot. Does that, does that make sense? Typical administrator, right? And so I'm there, and um, it's about 10 o'clock at night, and, and I get a call from um, one of the staff that says, um, we've had a boy run away. And that's ra rather unusual for a kid to run away at Patch. It just doesn't happen a whole lot. And, and so I um, went into the boys' dorm, which is right there by the apartment I was staying in, and they said he broke a light bulb, he cut on his arm, and he raced out of the door. And so our night staff had put in the call, and, and we're recruiting staff to do dorm checks and, and start doing, doing checks around our campus. And we do two-by-two. Um, that's just a rule for staff safety and kids' safety. So um, Terry Grimm, one of the, the girls' director, and I were walking with our flashlight. We had just passed the chapel at, at Patch. It was pitch dark, late at night, um, fall day, kind of cold. And so we're walking in the dark. And I don't know about you guys, but flashlights aren't that useful sometimes, right? You can kind of see around, but if it's really dark and someone's trying to hide, they're really hard to find someone with. And so we're walking, and suddenly um, we hear footsteps coming toward us. We can't quite see what it is. We hear this crash as a plane of, pane of glass hits a big tree, and, and you, know, you instinctively turn, and there's bits of glass flying all over. And then this boy stumbles at our feet and collapses. 
he's covered in blood and he's just going through this, this I'm not even sure what. Um, we stop and we start responding to him physically for his physical needs. That's what we're trained to do. So you're checking pulse, you're checking his breathing, you're doing all those things. You're using a calm voice and you're talking to him. And we went through the process of, of getting him the help that he needed that night. EMTs responded and, and we kept him safe that night. What was interesting for me is, is that sort of experience, when you go to bed after that, sleep doesn't come that quickly, does it? You know, and it's spent a while getting the blood off my hands, which is one of those things they say, wear gloves, all those kind of things, but you, you just have to respond sometimes. But I had done that, and then I'm laying in bed, and I just can't stop the thought processes coming through. And, and this thought came through into my mind crystal clear. Hurting kids need someone that they can run to that won't run away. Every hurting kid needs someone they can run to that won't run away. And so this week we're talking about really tough topics. We're gonna to be talking about um, pornography. We're gonna be talking about some, some video game addiction, social media. My guess is as we spend time together as parents, we're gonna discover that there's probably other tough topics that we need to talk about. But the key thing I want us to keep in mind is that our goal is that when we're freaked out by what's going on in our kids' lives, their friends' lives, all this stuff, our goal is to be the person that doesn't run away screaming that when we're scared, we don't hide behind stuff. When we're confused, when we don't have the answers, that we're not the ones that are hiding, but we're the ones that they can come to and, and that they can, through us, you know, find some freedom. And most of what that means is that for us, we're gonna be terrified, so who are we gonna be pointing them toward? Yeah, the source of life, the source of life. John 10.10 says, the thief comes to steal kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know, we're talking about life robbers. We're talking about so many different things this week. And so my goal as we spend our time together is for us to be courageous. Why? Um, because we know someone who is. You know, so as parents, maybe you're feeling a little trepidation of why am I here? What are we going to be learning? What is this going to be all about? Um, my goal at least for our time together is that we're hopeful that we're strong together that we realize that there's gifts that god has provided that that can take us a long ways and so just as an overview for this week we're going to be talking about quite a few different things um i guess i don't have it on my slide today we're going to be talking at the top of your list today we're talking about life ready kids which is my favorite topic because for me i talk about lots of scary stuff but if we don't have the perspective of the good stuff um then we really lack something that, that we need as, as motivation for us as parents. So we're going to start talking about life-ready kids. Tomorrow we're going to talk about communication, how to talk to the kids that are really good at saying, huh. <laughs> you, you probably know those kids, right, that, that don't say a whole lot. So how do you communicate with kids that don't want to talk? Communication is a huge, powerful thing that, that I think will, will unlock some truths behind that. Wednesday, we're going to be talking about pornography, video um, pornography, mostly online pornography, but it really translates into to other things as well as recovery. And so really helping us understand why pornography has, a, has this pull with our boys and girls and some things that we can do for that. Thursday is social media. No, Thursday is video games. And then Friday, social media, and I think we're going to have a, a blast together. A couple things that I just want us to keep in mind is that I'm here just to, to hang out with you guys. And so keep in mind that um, I've got this, this sign-up sheet up here. If you'd like to meet any time this week while we're together, if you've got time that you'd like to ask questions, 
um, run ideas by me, maybe have some, some different topics that you'd like to talk about, or maybe need some coaching around some parenting issues, I'd love to spend time with you. Uh, my daily schedule is be here and then be available. And so please um, fill that information out and I'd love to, to continue our learning process over this week. So Life Ready Kids, let's go ahead and dig in. Um, for some of you that are freaking out about handouts, if you turn over toward the back of your handout, you'll see that there's a cheat sheet. Um, I don't know if it's a daily cheat sheet. Yeah, actually, after each section that we're going through, there's a cheat sheet. The other thing is, at the very end of this presentation, you'll see a code. I've got a new one, but you can type in a code onto your cell phone or go online and you can get all the slides, all the handouts, all the materials. You don't have to copy anything if you don't want to. We'll send that all to you. So we'll, we'll keep it nice and simple. So one of the things, most parents send kids to Project Patch, and Project Patch is a youth program. We've been in existence since 1984. Um, our youth program's in the mountains of Idaho, beautiful, beautiful campus that's been flooding. <laughs> and so keep that in your prayers. Right on the Payette River, so a beautiful campus there. Most parents send their kids to Project Patch because they want their kids to stop doing the stuff that's driving them crazy. So when you think about it, I want my kid to stop doing drugs, I want them to stop skipping school, I want them to stop being angry, I want them to stop um, experimenting with marijuana, I want them to stop this weird sexual type stuff that they're doing, um, I want them to, to stop this stuff. How many of you relate to, to when you think about your kids, you have a bunch of stop doing it thoughts, right? Yeah, I remember <laughs> one of the things that we keep working on is stop picking your nose and wiping it on the upholstery of the car, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Such a simple request, right? But that's one of the things that I'd love for my kids to stop doing. Um, most of us can think of the stop doing it stuff. And honestly, just because a kid stops doing negative things, does that mean that they're doing well? Not really, is it? So when parents send their kids to patch, most of the time that they're wanting them to stop doing stuff, but what we're really excited about is how can we get kids engaged in the positive stuff? You know, not just decrease the negative behaviors, but honestly, at the end of the day, what we're dreaming of is the positive, the positive stuff to increase. And so that's our goal is today to talk about the positive stuff. Um, and one of the thoughts that I have as a key start of this is that things that make us feel safe may actually make our kids more vulnerable. Things that make us feel safe as parents may actually make our kids more vulnerable. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever used the word stranger danger or, or taught that concept of stranger danger? What is our goal in, in talking about stranger danger? Keep them safe. Okay, so I wanna keep my kids safe and so I'm gonna make them fearful of strangers because strangers are gonna hurt you. That's, that's the concept as, as we have it. Kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Do you realize that, that who is it that hurts most of our kids? People that know them, right? People that they know and like, people that you as a parent trust. And so what's interesting is that, yeah, occasionally there are strangers that hurt kids that they don't know, but that's, that's a small, small piece of it. Most kids are harmed by people that you trust and love. Okay, so stranger danger teaches kids to be fearful of who? Other people and fully trusting of who? Everybody they know. Tricky people. Did you realize tricky people is a skill that most of our kids need to learn, but it's a really, really hard thing to learn? 
Tricky people are the people that, that you like, the people you, you care for, that might be asking you to do something that breaks a personal boundary or breaks something that's scriptural or does something against Adam Mom's rules or just makes you feel, feel yucky. Tricky people. Now, I don't know about you guys, but what's easier to teach, stranger danger or tricky people? Stranger danger, much easier, isn't it? Okay, so here's another question for you. How many of you have ever worked in some form of sales? How many of you did your livelihood depend on you talking to strangers? Huge amounts, right? How many of you have ever been invited into doing something called evangelism? Let's hopefully it's all of us, right? What does evangelism involve? Meeting and building rapport with who? Strangers. Isn't it interesting to me that stranger danger is something that we push into our kids, but then our adult lives, our church, our relationships depend on us being able to build rapport and interact with strangers? Kind of strange, isn't it? But here's the thing is, can you turn that off? I mean, at one point, can you say, oh, I'm fine being with strangers now and I'm ready to be with strangers? Yeah, that doesn't quite work that way because you know what? Nagging behind people when they're knocking on the doors is, is this person going to harm me? Is this going to person harm me? But in the meantime, there's someone in their living room that probably is harming them that they don't feel safe talking about. So here's another thing that I find interesting is that most of us as parents um, like our kids to do what we tell them to do, right? I don't know about you, but my barky voice comes out sometimes when I tell my kids to do something really simple and they dwaddle. And so I want my kids to do what, what I say. I don't want them to talk back. Anyone feel that way? Hate the talking back? Okay, so as an adult, how many of you have had to use negotiation as a key adult skill? Negotiation, huge part of being an adult, right? Um, how many of you have had to use negotiation at church, you know, to navigate the potluck drama? I don't know what it is, but there's something about negotiation that's huge. But at what point do kids turn that on from just obey to I can start having my thoughts? It's interesting, isn't it? As a parent, if we want our kids to be able to negotiate, who's going to teach them? How are they going to learn? And is it going to make us feel more vulnerable to have them learning that, that skill? So some interesting thoughts that we're saying, but life is the easiest. Let me give you a real simple thing that I've seen parents. This is documented proof that seems to work for parents all the time. Ready? So if you have two kids and they're fighting, you need two things. Well, actually, you need a total of... of Four things to completely bring everything down to calmness. You ready for what it is? So two kids fighting, what do you need? Two iPads and two snacks. <laughs> two iPads and two snacks. What happens if you give a kid's iPad and a snack? It's so calm. It's so calm. I was at Camp Myvedon, which is the Adventist camp out of Idaho. Upper Columbia Conference this last week, and, and the room has about, they have about 90 staff there that were in, in the training that I was doing, and, and we're talking about conflict and kids, and we're talking about this, and I'm like, how many of you would like your camp director, whenever there's any problems with you guys as a staff, to just say, why don't you guys take some iPad time, and why don't you guys just eat a, a popsicle? You know, and, and the staff were thinking, yes, that'd be awesome. Most of you as adults, if you're in a workplace and you're in conflict, a snack and, a, and, a, and, and me time would be great, wouldn't it? But that doesn't have positive long-term. That actually creates the cycle of conflict and never solves conflict. Conflict becomes something that, that kids understand can't be dealt with. And so what I'm trying to say is, is that there's a lot of stuff that makes us feel more comfortable, that's way easier to teach, that, that makes us feel like, like we're doing okay. 
but I'm about to smash some of those down as, as we spend our time together. We're called to do difficult things. We're not called to simple conversations with our kids. We're not called for band-aiding. We're called to do something much deeper than that. Here's a statistic that just came out. Um, welcome home. The percentage of 18 to 34-year-olds living with parents and other family members hits a 75-year high. 39.5%. 39.5%. What I love about this statistic is that the first time I saw this, this is a newer version of it, so I got it from a different source, but the first time I saw it, the article had to do with real estate, and the real estate people were so exciting, excited because it meant there's pent-up demand. <laughs> Woohoo! You know, some of these days, these kids are going to move out. Um, there's a lot of things going on to make the statistic true. Our country culturally is changing some, and so the, the understanding of, of single family dwellings is changing a little bit. But as a whole, there's a lot of kids that are, are still living at home. Why do you think a, a kid in their early 20s might still be living at home? College debt. College debt. Huge amount of debt. What's the, what, anyone know what, what Andrews is per year? 34? That's a lot of money, right? Yeah, college debt is a, is a huge problem. What else? Yeah. Lack of life skills. Lack of life skills. Or, yeah. So, so there's some fear of if I go out, am I going to be able to do it? Paying bills, doing some of those things. What else? Job opportunities. Job opportunities. Yeah, so lack of, of jobs or, or high paying enough jobs like they want. But like my daughter and her friend, um, taking them to Taco Bell, they're 15 and 16, talking to the person on the other side where they have to actually order something freaks them out. Okay, yeah, so interacting with strangers, being responsible. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of navigating that they have to do that, that would be uncomfortable. How about just plain laziness? <laughs> laziness, lack of motivation. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and there's a good point to that. Well, someone told me, my wife and I just celebrated our 23rd anniversary this last week, so this is long ago advice, but they said one of the most dangerous things you can do right when you get married is, is expect to have the quality and the lifestyle level that your parents have when you're starting out. They're saying you can't do that, you haven't had enough years, you haven't had time to accumulate stuff, you need to realize that you're starting, starting down there. Um, how many people want to start down there, <laughs> you know? And what I, what I struggle with is that some of the colleges have some pretty nice dorms, right? Health clubs, that, it's pretty comfortable. You know, and so you leave college and you can't afford some of those things anymore. That's, that's tough and maybe dad and mom can. So what I have to say, there's a lot going on, but in a sense, there's, there's even a little bit more going on. Um, I want to talk about this slide first. So imagine I've got a box right here that's full of um, spiders. I'm, I'm afraid of spiders. All of them, just so you know, even the little ones. And so it's full of spiders. It's got some bear traps in here, even though it doesn't look like it. There's a bear trap. If I stick my hand, it's going to wallop it. Um, there's needles in there, dirty, rusty needles. There's razor blades. There's um, flu and snot. and. <laughs> Yeah, some of you are grossed out, right? There's awful stuff in here. How would I reach my hand into it if I was told I had to, to reach into it? With a leather glove. With a glove. I'd be really cautious, right? I tried to put it off. I tried to procrastinate it. I, I, I wouldn't do it with much excitement, and I'd do it with a lot of, a lot of trepidation. 
What if I was to tell you that this is filled with all the good things? Um, chocolate, cash, um, keys to fast cars, um, opportunities, all, all the good stuff. How would you reach into it? Yeah, you, you do it eagerly, right? You do it with excitement. You do it with, with anticipation. And so here's the question that I have for us as, as a group is, um, which box would be better represent the, the future that our kids are, are being launched into? Is it scary full of razor blades and bear traps, or is it full of richness, experience, life? It could be either way, right? But which is it? Which is it for you? That changes how we have this conversation because if, if our future for our kids is full of, of brokenness, if we believe that, that their chance of getting divorced is higher than their chance of being married, if we believe that their likelihood of having a career, a fulfilling career is really low, if we feel like that they're going into a broken church and that they don't have the opportunity to have vibrant church like like we did, if all the good stuff is in the past, what's that going to look like as, as we push them toward the future? We're going to prevent, right? We're going to slow that process down. We're going to procrastinate it. Us as parents are going to try to prevent our kids from experiencing pain rather than encouraging them to, to pursue life. And that's a really key question. Um, I speak for a lot of audiences. Um, most of the audiences are within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but, but I'm invited to speak with other audiences as well. And what I find is that within our church, there's a huge fear of the future. There's a huge dread of the future. And part of that affects possibly even how these numbers of our kids launching out of our homes does. Because if we dread the future, then what are our kids going to do? You know, I'm not, I'm not saying being Pollyanna and all these kind of things, but, but really what we, what we push our future for, what the beliefs are about the future, what, how we believe that God will work in our lives in the future impacts a huge deal about how we approach it. Going back to a slide, what I'm really challenging us to do is, is get this concept. And Andy Stanley wrote a bunch of books, but one of the concepts I love about Andy Stanley is that he teaches this concept of there's a big difference between good kids and great adults. Good kids versus great adults. How many of you remember someone that was maybe really good at being a kid, but they, by the time that they reached adulthood, they just never, they never launched? Anyone know someone like that? That their high school years were the top of their game, right? But as soon as they got into a bigger world, they just lacked the skill set to navigate it. They could be really comfortable at, at this level, but they, they just never could get, get higher than that. People that are good kids, but not necessarily great adults. When someone thinks about a good kid, especially traditionally, what do you think of the traits of a good kid? Traditionally obedient. Obedient. Polite. Hardworking. Spiritual. How, let's, let's break that down. By spiritual, what do we mean? Love the Lord. I'll just be blunt with you. A lot of parents mean spiritual in the way I'm spiritual, right? Ha having the same spiritual thoughts as, as we have, right? Which, which I think is what we want. We want, them to, we want to raise them in the Lord, right? But in a sense, we, we, want, we don't want them questioning, but we want them to be following, right? Following the spiritual things that we're teaching. 
What else do we want for, for good kids? Integrity? Yeah. What? Punctuality. You know, to be honest, these are really great things, and I think we all dream of them, but, but in a really basic way, we want kids that are just calm, quiet, drama-free. <laughs> we want them to brush their teeth when we ask them to brush their teeth. We want them to be waking up when we want them to. We want them to not make a mess. There's times that our lives are chaotic, and we just don't want them to add to the chaos. We just want to sleep. <laughs> We're tired. We're tired. And I don't mean that as a negative, but a lot of times when we get down to the end of the day, we just are tired and we just want things to be simple, you know, and we're looking for our kids to be simple. Great adults. You know, some of the lists that we have from good kids, I think, translate into a great adult. What makes someone a great adult? Integrity. Conviction. Self-starter. Yeah. Empathy, that's great. Ability to, to feel with other people. What else? The ability to ask questions and question things that other people try to push on them. Or um, even at work, you know, if they ask questions, they will, you know, instead of laying like, do this because I said so, it's like, you know, why? Okay, because... In yeah. So they know how to use it in more situations. You want someone that they can engage. They can engage with, with asking questions. Isn't that hugely, how many of you, when you think about your kids even taking this media stream, and we'll talk about that throughout this week, that we want them questioning, ability to question stuff, um, to be able to thoughtfully engage with stuff. There's a, a triathlete that I follow on Twitter, and so this is a triathlete. This is not a math person, right? And he had read a statistic, and he said, I don't know, you know, I'm not the one that can tell you whether the statistic is true or false, but shouldn't it be an even number? That's all he had written, and then he showed the statistic down below, and it said it had the total number of marriages in the U.S. in the last year, and it was an odd number. <laughs> okay, think about that. So, no, it's the total number of people married. That's what it was. The total number of people married in the last year in the U.S., and he's like, shouldn't that be an even number? <laughs> Because here's the thing is that there's people that do statistics, but yeah, you're totally right. Are they asking questions of it? Are they engaging with, are they just taking answers for granted or are they engaging in it? And so as we look at this stuff, what I'm looking at is the great adult skills, the self-starting, the ability to do stuff, the ability to make choices, the ability to put off um, stuff for the next day, the ability to, to, to not necessarily exert themselves all the time is the ability to let someone else lead and shine. There's lots and lots of adult skills, and so let's, let's dig into those. Um, there's a launch process. You'll see it every single day. We're going to talk about this constantly. I love talking about it just because we need to get our brains around it. So imagine on this very bottom, you've got birth all the way to adult. When does someone reach adulthood? When does someone become an adult? Do you remember your day that you discovered you're an adult? Some of you are waiting. <laughs> Even as a parent, you're like, what? <laughs> I'm a what? I don't know about you guys, but the day that, that I've had to sit in there <laughs> was kind of a scary thing. I'm in an adult tent at camp meeting. What, what happened here? Um, what's interesting is our, and by our, I'm talking about traditional um, Caucasian United States, doesn't have rites of passage to adulthood in, in the way that some other cultures have. 
Um, when you look at the Jewish culture, what do they have at age 12? Bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, it's a transition. Where you sit in worship changes. Who you spend your time with changes. It's a transition from youth to adulthood, right? When you look at the Hispanic, um, they have the quinceanera. I, I never took Spanish, but quinceanera is a 15-year-old rite of passage for the girls. Um, when you look at some of the Native American, there's transitions that they made. Different cultures did a lot to celebrate it. In our country, we've got age 16, you can drive a car, 17, you can go to R-rated movies, and 18, you can go fight. 21, you can drink. 21, you can drink. I've come from the state of Washington, which is embarrassingly, they do marijuana at age 21 now. It's, it's a legal recreational thing. Wow. So if you look at what our country does is that we have these things that happen at these stages where you're allowed to hurt yourself a little bit more, right? <laughs> you're allowed to do a little bit more damage. Um, but it's really not a transition. It's really not a transition. Um, developmentally wise is that there's different, the, the brain development, and when I mean by brain development, I mean brain in integration. The whole brain is there, but when a baby's born, and we'll talk about it throughout the week, is that when a baby's born, um, their brain is completely there, but it's really not functioning together. So when they see their foot, what do they think? That's going to be delicious. <laughs> I'm going to put that in my mouth. That's going to be yummy. Because they don't really, they're not at that process of walking. They, they're not at the coordination, but the brain fully integrates. And, and what they say for us guys is it could be our late 20s. You know, 25, 28, some of those years. And you just heard the math a couple minutes ago. I was married at 22 years old. God was good. <laughs> I'll tell you that is that I had my executive function fully developed with my wife, and my wife um, helped me with some of those things. Most girls are, are their brains integrated by about 25, by about 25. And what th that means is that we teach with, with kids is, is that for a kid to get from impulse to really thinking it through is, is a lot of times about 10 seconds. About 10 seconds. For us adults, it could be about three seconds. How many of you have done stupid in less than three seconds? <laughs> yeah. You see it in traffic, right? Where someone swerves and someone, you know, how long does that take? Not long. Not long. But 10 seconds in life of a kid is an eternity um, for that brain integration. So I'm not saying when that adulthood is. What I will say is that statistically nowadays, they're saying that there's a prolonged adolescence. Is that people are, are pushing off some of the stages of adulthood later and later into life. And so you've got birth, and at the very bottom, you've got not responsible. At the very top, you've got fully responsible. So when a child is born, they're not responsible, but our goal is to launch them into fully responsible. Um, what does a baby do for the very first time at about four months that all the parents are like, woohoo, this is awesome, my baby's a genius? What? I heard roll over. Roll over. You know, I was talking with, the, like I said, I was just with the, with the college high school kids, and one of the kids was like, walk! <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> he had a four-month-old walking? <laughs> you know, I'm surprised they aren't yelling, calculus! Um, four months old, the baby rolls over for the very first time. How does the baby roll over before that? Yeah, it sounds like a bad joke, doesn't it? The parent's fully responsible. The baby can't even hold their own head up. Think about that for a minute. Who has to hold the baby's head up? The parent does. But there is a time in which the kid is fully launched and the parent's no longer holding the head up, no longer rolling the kid over, because that's transitioned for the kid becoming responsible for those things. 
I remember when, when I was in China adopting our, our oldest, Kara, and um, she was eight months old, and we had just gotten her, and she's in my arms, and she's holding on to my, my shoulder, a little eight-month-old, and one of the first tasks I had to do as a dad was cross the road in China. <laughs> I was freaked out, you know, and whose responsibility is it to get her across the road? Yours. All mine, right? And I'm watching all these things. But what I find interesting is that God put something into a parent's heart that parents just talk to their kids. Even before the, parent, the child can really do much other than drool, parents just talk. You know, you got to look both ways. Watch out, a car's coming. They just kind of verbalize stuff. But cars there in my arms, we made it. <laughs> we made it across. But the transition that we started at that point was at eight months on was teaching her how to cross the road. So when you were at the four-year-old at the curb and you say, is it clear? And the kid says, yes, what do you do? Anyway. Yeah, you better be looking. <laughs> Your kid's not that smart, you know. So you look both ways and you cross. I, this last week we were walking to a school function and, and <laughs> there's a dad that told his kid, look both ways before you cross the road. And, and I, I teased him a little bit. It's like, you should add one key phrase, look both ways and if it's clear, <laughs> cross the road. Because honestly, our kids, especially the young ones, are, are at that point, I looked both ways, I crossed the road. Because their brains aren't necessarily engaged. They might be obedient, but their brains aren't engaged. There's a time that we start with in which the parent line is higher than the kid line. So the parent is more responsible than the child. That's a time of teaching and discipline. And by discipline, I don't mean necessarily the, the idea of punishment. What I mean is that the kid lacks self-discipline. How many of you have kids that have played piano? Um, how did that practice time go for you? <laughs> go practice the piano. Um, kids that lack discipline, when they go to practice the piano, they'll play all their favorite stuff, they'll dwaddle, they'll just fiddle with the notes, right? And so what the piano teacher has to do, and, and my kids' piano teachers, the same thing is that you need to do this, and then you need to do this, and then you need to do this. And what she does is she shows it to us as parents, because eight and nine-year-olds just don't practice as well as, as you'd expect. And so we have that, our kids lack self-discipline, so as parents we have to introduce the discipline. Does that make sense? And so how do you, um, for us, we have a, a morning routine, you have an evening routine. When they get home from school, there are certain routines of how they do their backpacks and all that stuff because our kids lack that self-discipline, so we, we exert it. Um, have you noticed, though, there comes an amazing time when you've got a teenager, maybe a little older kid, that sits down at the piano and just starts playing because they love to play? That's a transition, isn't it, from no longer you doing the discipline to them transitioning to, to owning it themselves, doing it because they love it. And that's what we're shooting for, is that at this point, the parent has to press it, but over time, they take over. And in this launch, the relationship as a parent changes as the kid becomes more responsible than you for that item. So think about backpacks in a first grader. Who's responsible for making sure the lunch is packed and the kid has a backpack for a first grader? Probably the parent, right? Because your kid, if, if you have a first grader and you ask them to pack their lunch, what would they put in it? <laughs> What would I put in it even as a 40-some-year-old? I'd put cookies in it, so that's not necessarily a bad idea, but they probably wouldn't put in their lunch, or they'd, they'd put in a toy, or they'd put in whatever they're playing with, or they'll put in all their favorite stuff, right? And they'll forget it. And so a parent has a little bit more responsibility, but when you've got a fifth grader, who's responsible for getting their, their lunch in their backpack and getting it to school? 
it changes, right? Because their capacity and capability changes. And as a parent, you have to change and they have to change. Would your kids love it if you took on the responsibility for all the hard things in their life? Maybe, maybe not. Laundry? Probably. Um, some of the negative stuff, but, but what we have to do is we have to constantly hand it off, constantly hand it off. What we're doing is giving our kids the responsibility and the outcome. The responsibility and the outcome. And that sounds way easier than it is. The problem that we run into is there's days that our kid feels like an adult, there's days our kid feels like a kid, and they're transitioning back and forth. It's hard to see exactly where this X is, but this is a goal. It's a launch. It's a launch. Um, let me give you some examples of launches that, that don't go as well. Um, well, let me, sorry, I missed this key, for, this key idea. As the child goes in, not necessarily age and maturity, one of the key things that you start seeing develop in them is that their motivation goes from being externally motivated, transitioning to being internally motivated. External motivation is fear or reward, right? And so if you've got a little child, um, let's go to the, the primary tent. Um, you could give out ribbons and those kids would learn scripture like crazy, right? That's just how they work. Um, with the youth tent, is that going to work? What sort of response are you going to have from you if you give lots of external rewards to a youth for learning something like scripture? That starts feeling yucky to them, doesn't it? That concept starts feeling kind of hypocritical. I, why would I learn it for a cash or reward or, or something like that. They start, feeling, they start feeling cheapened by that. So if you walk into your teenage, into your room, um, your teenager's room and they've cleaned it all on their own without any prompting, you're thinking in your mind, hallelujah chorus, right? <laughs> this is wonderful. But as a parent, if you say, it's about time that your room looked horrible, what is it that you're trying to kiss up for? What is it that you want? But what's your teen going to hear? What is it that you want? That you need to clean your room. Yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting is if you are saying, what do you want? What you've taken is that you've taken an internal motivation and you've made it seem like they're trying to do it to win something, to get a prize or to butter you up or to soften you down. Does, does that make sense? And what they will do is that they won't clean their room again for a while because they'll show you that they're not hypocritical or they'll show you I'm going to prove to you that, you know, that my, my motives are pure. They want good motives. They want to be working from a, a good motive. So if you have a teen that's moving toward that internal motivation and you give an external reason for it, it cheapens it and it might actually diminish them doing it. We made this mistake at Patch um, probably more than once, but one of the, the big times was we had this teen that was dysregulated. That means he was at that point of, of hurting himself or hurting someone else. You know, just he was fired up, you could tell. And our goal was to just really kind of get him away from the other kids and get him to the safe room. And so it's a walk from the school over to the safe room, not a long ways, but we're walking with the kid and things are going well. He's really doing a great job of just kind of taking deep breaths. He's doing a good job of keeping perspective and he's doing it out of his own choice. Okay, so pretty amazing moment, right? Dysregulated kid that's angry, that typically lashes out, that's walking. And one of our therapists of all people said, wow, this sure is easy. <laughs> Guess what happened at that point? He went nuts. I'll show you, right? And so the key thing that we're looking at is that we're trying to get internal reasons for our kids doing stuff. We're trying to fire that up. 
We're trying to get that lit up for our kids because honestly, the external doesn't last that long. Part of the reason that, that the drug campaigns, excuse me, that the drug campaigns have failed so miserably is that most drugs and sex um, prevention is done on external motivation. Fear of STD, fear of pregnancy, fear of, of frying your brain, fear of retardation, that sort of thing, right? That's not a long-term motivator. If you're at a workplace and you were fearful of your boss and their response, how long would you be a great employee there? It's not a lasting motivator. What we want is we want the internal. And, and really when we talk about pornography on Wednesday, that's our goal is that we're not keeping kids away from porn based on fear of what God would think or because of anything other than God's got a model that's, that's rich. There's lots of internal reasons um, to, stay, to stay away from it. All right, let's keep moving along. Um, this is a failed launch, what we call a failed launch. This is a case in which the parent retains all the decision-making, all the consequences, withholds consequences from their kid, and, and just kind of takes care of things. What, what is that called? Any idea? You hear this term for parents all the time? Helicopter. Helicopter. Um, why would a parent do this? If you could keep your child from hurting, Fear, yeah, fear. If I could prevent my child from getting hurt, shouldn't I do it? Fear is a big one, huge amount of fear out there. Um, you hear this comment all the time at playgrounds now, be careful. Well, you hear that when parents are away from their phones and paying attention. <laughs> but, but be careful, be careful, be careful is a, a term you hear all the time. Um, one of the things I find interesting is that there's a series of books let me see if I have, whoops, I think I skipped a slide here. There's, um, maybe I didn't save it. Yeah, here it is. Oh, there's a series of books. How many of you have seen the What to Expect When You're Expecting books? Really makes sense, the topics, the books. The idea behind it is that there's a lot of parents that are going through this for the first time. They feel awkward, their body's changing. Um, lots and lots going on, so they, they wanted to give a book on, on what to expect. What's interesting now, this is taken at Barnes & Noble, my local Barnes & Noble, and there's even more than that, but it's a whole series of books now. And what they help with is that they guide moms and dads on what they should be doing as the baby is developing, right? So what foods should mom be eating? Any idea? Nutritious, Nutritious food. Most likely all the foods that she doesn't like to eat that make her sick, right? <laughs> That's what she should be eating during pregnancy. Um, how much water should she be drinking? Lot and lot of water. How much water does she want to be drinking? Why? She has to throw up or she has to use the restroom all the time, right? And so there's this dynamic going on where you have to drink lots of water and you have to eat all the foods that you don't want to eat and you shouldn't be eating the foods that you really are, are craving, right? And so food problems, should you have anger in your life? No. no, no, no anger. So you should be getting along with your spouse all the time. And you should be saying soothing words to the baby. The baby should be listening to certain music, not other music. And you should be getting a lot of sleep. But here's where the problem comes in. How much water are you drinking? <laughs> Too much water. So you're, how's your sleep going? How's your tiredness? How's your irritability? How's your relationship with your spouse? <laughs> it's hard, right? Um, this is why our family adopted all three of our kids. <laughs> but what's crazy about these books is that there's parents that have so many things that they should be doing that they intend to be doing, but by the time their baby's born, they've fallen short. 
you know, honestly, there's so many things going on. They look at their journal. One of these is the journal where you're journaling all the things that you're supposed to be doing, and they say that there's weeks missing in their journal. There's all sorts of things going on, and, and in the back of their mind, when they're in cradle roll and their kid's throwing things at another kid, part of them are thinking, maybe that's because I didn't have enough, or I didn't sleep enough, or that I didn't do it right. That I didn't do it right. Kind of a sad commentary, isn't it? What I find funny, and some of you are reading the things, this book, yes, over here says, what do you expect before you're expecting? <laughs> I have no idea what's in that book. What do you expect before you're expecting? Anyone, you read that one? Yeah, it seems like a ridiculous book title. Um, but here's the thing is that the parents are, are up there, and if the parent is um, feeling all this fear, keeping track of everything, is the kid going to launch? Is the kid going to grow in, in responsibility? I find it interesting, there's a, a, our, our kids are from China, and there's a, a story of a girl from Toronto that went back to China to be with another Chinese adoptive kid, and that girl from China came to Toronto, and they, they kind of did a home switch for a couple weeks. And um, young woman, and she was probably 14 years old, she got to China, and she watched the other girl from China chopping away with this massive knife. And she was 14 years old, and her parents did not let her use knives, right? And some of you are like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, it's not that smart. You know, they'll lose their fingers. I don't know what it is, but, but at that point is that, the, you know, who knows what they can do. That girl from Toronto was able to get on public transit. She could do a lot of things at school that the Chinese girl couldn't do. And part of it was just what the parents let them do, right? And, and what the environment was like. And what we have to say is that at, at this model, while it makes sense that the parent manages a lot, what we've seen is that, that kids are put at huge amounts of danger. Um, let me give you an example is, is we've got kids that, that um, parents are like, I don't need to talk about pornography or those kind of things because my kids only influences at a Christian school, Pathfinders, and our home doesn't have internet or phones. So we're fine. You know, we, we don't need to deal with that. We've, I've created an environment in which, which my kid is, is protected. What we find is that, at least for these kids, is that that kid is someplace and a kid hands them a screen and that screen has an image on it and um, that kid has no capacity of what to do with it. No idea how to approach it. And, and at that point, the parent can't be there to protect them. And the likelihood of that kid talking to their parent about what they just saw on the screen is what? Yeah. Probably dad and mom don't know about sex. <laughs> Or they think if I tell dad and mom that they're just going to restrict my life even more. You know, so those kids are made hugely vulnerable by that. What you find out is in colleges in the United States right now is that the entrance rate for males is about the same, but the graduation rates um, for girls is skyrocketing and the boys are dwindling. The dropout rate for freshman um, boys is, is astronomical. Part of that is video games. Video games is that there's boys that get to college and no one is telling them to turn it off. The parent's not there to turn it off and make them study, and so what happens? The kid can't turn it off. Who owns them at that point? The video game owns them. And so while it makes sense that a parent would provide that protection, what we have to say is, is the results that we've seen in kids is that the kids aren't able to, to handle it. They aren't able to do it. Um, but once again, I'll tell you is that the, the push on parents is really hard right now. There was a study that looked at um, Baby Faye. Do you guys remember? I think it's Baby Faye, the, the little baby that fell down the well. Is that, is that, huh? Baby Jessica, thank you. Baby Jessica fell down the well. Um, anyone remember that? 
Yeah. What they did was that they took all the, the records that they could find about other parents' response to, to baby Jessica's parents. And so what did other people say to baby Jessica's parents at, at that point when that happened? And that was, I think, mid-80s. Does that sound right? And what they found out is that there was an outpouring of love and compassion toward baby Jessica's parents. There was a huge amount of support for them. There was a huge amount of care. People empathized with them. They really connected on it. Um, what they find nowadays is that if anything bad happens to a kid, the words that come out at the parents are barbed and painful. Um, one of our staff members, her grandson was killed in a car accident. And little guy, four years old, I think, and driving home at night in Garden Valley with her daughter-in-law. And they were coming along and the van had hit a rock and rolled over and, and the little boy was killed. And mom had responded to his needs, but then she was, um, I think, unconscious for quite a while after that. And what was interesting is that when she came out of her consciousness and whatever, and, and she started getting the news stories, and it's all online, she started reading the comments, and the comments said they should take the rest of her kids away. She should have died instead of him. I mean, just painful, painful stuff, one after another, pages full of, of pain against her. And the reason everyone was mad was that he wasn't in his car seat. His car seat wasn't buckled when that happened. And what she wrote in an in a op-ed piece that ended up being taken up by USA Today and some different places was her perspective on what had happened. And what she had shared was that, you know, just four miles earlier they had stopped and, and clicked him back in. He was a little Houdini. At some trips they would actually zip tie him in to his car seat, but they worried about that because they were on a river on the way to Garden Valley is a river, so you know, is that a safe thing to be doing is zip tying your kid in? And so they had older kids in the car, and it was kind of a family responsibility of let's just keep this kid in the car. They had done discipline, they had done rewards, they had done lots of stuff, and they had stopped four miles earlier, four miles later, he had passed away. But the pain against parents is real, I'll tell you that. For some of you in this room that have kids that have left the church, um, you know what I'm talking about. The you should have or you could have or, or what were, was your home life if he had done better worships, if he had done, you know, the list goes on and the parents feel the weight. The level of judgment against parents is, is painful. And what I have to say is that God, as a, a father, represented himself as the father of two sons. One is the prodigal son that we know of right in the story, the kid that went off and did the fleshly stuff. The other son's this bitter son that's just there because of obligation, not out of love. So when we talk about kids and getting kids, you know, that, and, and having kids that are rebellious and kids that are non-connected, understand that, that that voice that's giving you judgment is not God's voice. The, the voice that gives you understanding and hope and an answer and a, and a method to work in your kid's life, that's God's voice. That's God's voice. But please don't, please don't, don't let fear take over. Don't let fear take over. And so our goal for, for this week is, is for some of the stuff that I'm doing is, is having you calm down, give your kids some responsibility, give them some outcome, let them feel some risk, let them feel some pain. Um, another one that we feel um, happens quite a bit is the parent that's just less available. We see this from addiction. Um, parents that are in and out of jail, parents that are really narcissistic, living their own life, those are situations that we see in which the parent's just less available. We see in these sorts of situations, kids that can do lots of stuff at a really young age, um, we have story after story at our project patch of, of kids that were neglected that can make their own food, that can get themselves to school. Um, who taught these kids how to cook when their parents were 
strung out on drugs. They taught themselves, right? And so if the food was burnt, who ate it? They did. So life teaches these kids, life teaches painfully. I'll, I'll just say that. Life involves lots of scars, right? These kids haven't built trust with their parent and they lack ability to connect with other adults. Their teen relationships are huge, but they, they lack ability to, to connect with other, with other adults. And they're really resistant to kind of any kind of emotional help. Um, they're really emotionally dysregulated. They flare up really easy or they get depressed, sad really easy. And so what I have to say is that most of us probably, this is our line more than that first one. But our goal is to raise, raise the kids line up and also, you know, really help parents realize that I need to, you know, step up my game and be a little more teaching, um, maybe a little bit more involved um, with our kids. So this launch pattern is really key because if we don't get this launch pattern down, um, most of the other stuff that we're teaching just doesn't make sense. What we're doing is we're launching kids to success. Real quickly, um, I was a little guy and I hated the teeter-totter because I'd get up on the teeter-totter and my big heavier brothers would do what on the end? They'd sit there and just let me struggle or they'd get off and I'd whack my bottom down, right? Um, because imbalance causes frustration. What I find is that if I could move the fulcrum far enough, I can use my finger to raise and lift it, right? That I can raise bigger things if I can move that fulcrum. Um, what I have discovered over and over with families, and this is that every kid has to carry life. Life is heavy, life is hard, life doesn't make sense. So whether you're from the inner city or even wherever you are, life is there. It's temptations, it's hardness. But the family is the fulcrum for a lot of the kids. Is if the family's thriving, they can lift more. If the family's dysfunctional, it, everything becomes a little harder. Um, and so if a family's dysfunctional, we find that it impacts the kids' school performance, their relationships, it impacts how they can work. Everything just gets a little bit harder. Um, when you look at fractions, a kid that's having family divorce happening at the same time that they're learning fractions, how do they do with, with math at that point? You know, majority of kids really struggle. There are some kids that hyper-focus on school when their family's going through, through problems, but majority of kids have a hard time dealing with it. Same with you for work. If you've had something bad happen at, at home, how's your work performance for that day? Distracted? Harder? And so what we have to say is, is that the family can make everything harder for the kids, or, or, and honestly, when the family's thriving, it just makes life easier makes life way easier. And the other thing that we have to say is that the strength of the parent relationship constrains how much that family can move in the positive direction. You know, for kids that feel insecure, that just makes it harder for them to move forward. I describe this on a regular basis. Imagine you're hiking in the woods and you see this, this um, creek that you have to get across and there's this, this um, fallen tree over it. If you're going to go across that tree, what would you do? You'd step on it, give it a couple bounces, right? Feel that it's secure and then you'd cross the thing, right? For kids that feel like that, that tree's not secure, what are they gonna do? Keep testing it, right? Keep testing and testing, take a step, testing a little bit more, test it and test it and test it. They don't cross. And the reason I say this is that your family, for some kids, when they feel insecure about the Atomom's relationship, when they feel insecure about the, the maybe it's a performance-based house or some of those kind of things, they just keep testing and testing, and sometimes they discover that it breaks. You know, and so they, they, don't move, they don't move forward. 
You know, a couple things that we'll, we'll share over the week is that perfectionism is a huge future destroyer. What I find interesting is that, that a lot of the teaching I do in Idaho, the two groups of people that show up are Seventh-day Adventists and Latter-day Saints. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And what they have in common is that, is that both have a, have a tendency for perfectionism. And by that, I mean a fear-based perfectionism. These kids that, and, and adults that feel like I, I should be doing better. Feeling this constant nagging that I'm not doing, I'm not doing well enough. Um, not fully satisfied, always afraid. When they turn in a project, that nagging feeling like I could have done, I should have done better. In a sense, that leads to a ton of procrastination. It leads to a lot of thought, not as much action. It means that there's a lot of good stuff going on in their life that's just never completed. Or just that, that sense that I, I have to have it perfect, and so a lot of hiddenness. What we also see at Project Patch is that from some of the most perfectionistic homes, typically has a lot of the sexual sin in the family. A lot of really dangerous, gross um, things happening um, through those homes. Um, there's a verse that I love, Matthew, excuse me, Romans 8, 38. Romans 8, 38. I'm just going to read it here in the dark. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For any of you that struggle with perfectionism, did you hear that list? Nothing you do, right? Nothing out there can separate you from the love of God. It's not our performance brace, not height or depth, none of that stuff. And, and what I want to say is that most of us respond pretty quickly if our child's cutting on their arm. If their child is doing drugs, we'd, we'd become concerned really fast. And what I have to say is that, is that more and more realize that if your child is showing perfectionistic tendencies, that's a time for, for getting the help that that, that child needs. And, and we'll got, we've got some ideas for that. We can talk about it more as, as we spend some time together. But, but be very careful for that. It... it goes into addiction, it goes into failed relationships, it goes into a disconnect from, from who God really wants them to be, and missed opportunities for ministry. Um, huge amounts of that. So perfectionism, huge destroyer. Uh, People-pleasing is another one that we see over and over and over, is that, that kids that feel this incessant need to keep everyone happy tend to, tend to feel lots of poison in their life and tend to be taken advantage of a lot. So if I am this personality with you guys, and I am this personality with you guys, that works out pretty good until we're in the same room, right? And as long as I can keep it together, right? But if I have to get my personality like this way some of the time and this way, what eventually does that require me to be? Two different people in one body. Um, what's a good psychiatric term for that? <laughs> That's not a good thing for us to have split personality, is it? And what I find is that a lot of our kids are, are trained to be, okay, I'm, I'm this way to please this person, and, and I'm trying to please this person, I'm trying to please this person. And that can get really, get really fouled up. Um, Dr. Meg Meeker tells a story about a dad that came into her um, practice and was really frustrated because his 14, 15-year-old daughter was doing all this horrible stuff. He, just, he said, four months ago, she was obedient. She'd do what I asked. She'd show up at time for curfew. Um, she was doing her, her grades were good. She was involved with the youth group. She was respectful at home. Everything was going great. She'd do exactly what, what we needed her to do. 
And now, since she's got that boyfriend in her life, um, she's starting to experiment with drugs and alcohol. She's not studying. She's not coming home. She's angry. She's doing all this horrible stuff. What changed in her? Why did she change? And what Dr. Meg Meeker said is that she didn't change. Her authority changed. Did you catch that? Her authority changed. And so earlier, she was doing everything to please him. Now she's doing the same things to please this, this negative influence. And so what we have to say for our kids is that, that people-pleasing, yeah, it's really easy for us as parents when, when our kids are acting that way. But what we have to recognize is that what might be easy now will actually become harder. We'll, we'll put our kids more at risk. Does that mean our kids talk back and say no and argue? Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes. And we have to find a balance of when that's okay and how to do it and how to train our kids into that. Um, but yeah, people pleasing is, is a huge problem. So the best ways for kids to learn, and this is a technique we talk about all the time, is if you can learn from seeing someone else's crash, that's fantastic. And so if you can observe someone else destroying their life and say, wow, I'm not going to do that, and, and actually change your life based on it, that is a, a huge achievement for kids. And so we really press kids that way of observing. Um, second best is listen to advice from the wise. This is a little more painful. And so this involves maybe some confrontation. And so if my kid is doing something that's, that's unhealthy, I have to go talk to them. But if I talk to them and say, you know, it really seems like you're, you're um, doing this and, and that it's, you're, you're playing games in a way that, that doesn't look like you're having fun anymore, but, but it's getting compulsive. If my kid responds to that, that's fantastic, right? But what we find is that a lot of kids tend to learn from personal experience. They have to feel the pain themselves. We've got these kids at our youth ranch that if you say, um, don't touch that, that'll burn you, what do they do? They touch it. And what's going on in their brains is that that's for other idiots, right? I can touch it and I'll be fine. So when you tell those kids, don't do marijuana because it's going to hurt your brain, what do they think? Not my brain, I'll be fine. When they see pictures of people with meth mouth and heroin problems, what do they think? Not me. I'll, I'll be fine. And what do they discover when they get burned? Yeah, me. Here's the problem that, that we find is that the same thinking, at least our kids have what, what I call exceptional thinking. That exceptional thinking that they're outside of all the rules is consistent with these kids. When you say Jesus Christ loves you, Jesus died for you, Jesus forgives every single sin, Jesus, no matter what you did, Jesus will, will cleanse you from that. What does this kid think? Not me. Not me. And so spiritually, these kids are really hard to, to get to, but what we have to say is it just takes time and process and time and process and consistent messaging. And any time that we can help them you know, actually connect with it. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about some clay stuff. We'll bring that in a little bit more. But anytime you can get a kid to actually see something, touch something, um, get in contact with, with something that's more than just a, a feeling or emotion, the way that they can excuse me, symbolize it or, or see it, there's huge power in that. How are we doing on time? I have no idea. All right, we're doing great. So here's a couple things is that caught top practiced, caught top practiced. Um, for kids to learn something, they just need to catch it. And what I love is that kids are way smarter than we, we think that they are. The more that we can have them just catch on and observe and, and 
internalize, the better. And so what I love is, is that um, having your kids along with you to do adult stuff, having them along with you when you do interpersonal things, having them with you for stuff allows them to, to get that insight. Just, just catch it. Catch on what it's like. Um, if you have people in your church that are wise people, having your kids around them, having together time. Um, for me, I, I won't share it right now, but the key for my, my, um, my eighth grade year, I was ready to just do some really stupid things with my life. And I spent a summer in pickup trucks with church members mowing lawns. You know, and that was a summer in which I was never preached at, but I caught a lot. I caught a lot of really good stuff. Um, kids have to be taught. And so that idea is that there's a time for coaching and discipline, right? Realizing that our kids might, and I'm pointing to here because I have the X over here, but there's that first phase in which they have to be taught stuff. They d just don't assume that they know how to do things. Um, for emotional stuff, for interpersonal stuff, for asking questions. This stuff isn't natural. They have to be taught it. And then it just takes practice. Lots and lots of practice. How many of you have learned a new skill recently? Anyone learn something new? What was it? Soap making. Soap making. Okay, fantastic. Any other new skills here? Yeah. Knitting. Knitting. Yeah, I've been trying to learn how to play the mandolin, um, which is a lot of fun to, to try to do. What I, what I have to say is that for adults, a lot of us quit learning how to do stuff. And what I have to say is a key ability to do you know, with your kids is, is learn something with your kids. Practice doing something new with your kids. To me, this is one of the most powerful things about summer camps and pathfinders. Summer camps and pathfinders, when your kids are learning new activities and learning new skills, they're open um, to adult interaction in a really, really powerful way. And we'll talk about it tomorrow with communication, but what I have to say is, is get in comfortable with doing things wrong, practicing it, that, that sort of stuff. So caught, taught, practice, caught, taught, practiced. Repeating that over and over and over is, is a life skill. So this is from the National Association of Colleges and Employers. They get together every single year and come up with um, a list of things that they'd like the colleges to be teaching kids so that they'll be more productive when they come out as employees. So can you, can you picture what that is? So it's a, it's a survey every single year, all these employers take it and the colleges look at it and say, okay, if we do these things, our kids are hireable. And so let's take a look at this list. Leadership, 80%, ability to work in a team, 78% communication skills, written ones, problem solving skills, communication skills that are verbal, strong work ethic, initiative, analytical and quantita qualitative, uh, quantitative skills, flexibility, adaptability, technical skills, interpersonal skills, computer skills, detail-oriented, organizational ability, friendly, outgoing personality, strategic planning skills, creativity, tactfulness, entrepreneurial skills, or risk-taker. How many of these skills that employers are longing for are actually things that you could have your seven-year-old working on? I mean, seriously, by the time your kid is 12, how many of these skills are within their, their grasp? Yeah, there's some like annotate, analytical and qualitative skills or, or that might be more technical if you, if you take a look at it. But the majority of this list is something that actually comes from the home, isn't it? Colleges can't actually teach most of these if the kid is resistant to it. Isn't it interesting to think about is that some of the stuff that we take for granted, remember when we take, talked about our kids and their futures? If our kids are being raised learning these things just through our, our relationships, caught top practice, caught top practice, they're a leg up, right? 
What I've been telling kids over and over, and this is teenagers, if you have this one skill, your marketability is going to grow exponentially over the next 20 years. It's the ability to be non-stimulated. The ability to be bored. Think about that. The ability for you not to look for a distraction and to be able to actually do deep thinking. Pretty amazing, isn't it? For an employer to know that you're doing your task without checking your emails. <laughs> Pretty awesome to think about. So, you know, one of the things, I'm, I'm not going to go through all of them here, but I'll just go through a quick one of how we teach um, a bunch of these life skills. And um, a lot of these are on our blog. If you search our blog for Life Ready Kids, you'll see a lot of topics that I try to write on that just kind of help us as parents understand some of the, the themes that might be going on. Um, a lot of this I took from Decisive, the book by Cheap, uh, Chip and Dan Heath, who are, are great authors, really interesting stuff. But what he says is that most people have no ability to really make good decisions. And so what we end up doing is having narrow framing. So that means I either am going to do this or that. So if your kid comes to you and says, I want to go to this party, and if I don't go to the party, what? My life is ruined. <laughs> what are they doing? They're doing narrow framing, right? If I don't get an A on this paper, what's going to happen? I'm going to die or my friend. You know, it's, it's really narrow framing. And, and honestly, as, as adults, we do narrow framing all the time. We, we scope the question into either A or B, and we really don't see much else. Confirmation bias. That means that, have you ever noticed that when you buy a new car, you start seeing that car everywhere you go? That's confirmation bias. And what we find is that a lot of kids, if, especially our kids that are doing marijuana, um, tend to have, I'm doing marijuana, and they start looking for all the statistics that confirm that, right? And if they've got a paper that says that it's hurting their frontal lobe, their development, and their cause and effect thinking, what do they do with that paper? I'm not going to read that one. They just look for stuff that, that fits their bias. Short-term emotion, and so that means that buying stuff or committing to stuff with a whole bunch of emotion involved. How many of you have ever bought a timeshare? Wow. Okay. Some of you are like, I'm not going to raise my hand. Chuck's going to say, say something. Um, Timeshares are sold because of short-term emotion. They get you on vacation. They get you fed. They, they really speak some positive things to you. It feels great. Um, and then they sell you a timeshare. Um, overconfidence. Overconfidence. That's what makes an 18-year-old decide that they want to be a dentist and go off and pay how much money to become a dentist? Only to discover that they have a phobia of teeth, right? <laughs> Overconfidence. And what Chip and Dan Heath say is that there's some skills that people can learn is that what he talks about is this ability to widen your options. And so helping kids, so if the kids only have two options, okay, I'm going to start talking when you have four options. Or what would be a third, if one of those options wasn't available, what, what would you do? Yeah. Do what? It's not a choice if you don't have options. It's not a choice if you don't have options, exactly. And so sometimes you might say, hey, if, 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 if a choice of not going to this or if, if that's not a choice, what would be another choice you could add to it? Widen your options. Reality test your assumptions. This is really important because what you're doing is, is that, um, so imagine a kid that wants to become a dentist, 18 years old. How would you reality test that? Calling a church member that's a dentist and having them go hang out for a week or two. You know, just observing in the practice. What would their experience be like you know, seeing that. So it's not just a mission trip in which they got to pull a tooth, right? Which that's an experience too, but reality tested in, in what would it be like at home 
day after day. I'm attained distance before buying. They say the worst place to buy a car is at the car lot, right? Because you have so much emotion into it, that's why they want to keep you in that little office. And so attaining distance. And so what we say for kids sometimes, if they're trying to decide if I'm going to do this or that, you know, how is it that we can add some distance and time into the decision making? Those are, are huge gifts for things. And then prepare to be wrong. What would be a good sign that maybe you made a wrong decision? Or what would be some things to look for that would let you know that you need to make an adjustment? You know, those are key things that, that imagine gates that you have to process through that just keep you thinking, keep you thinking. And that's the type of, of thoughts that we're trying to engage our kids into so that they're just not saying I make decisions based off what feels good or my gut, but they're actually using a set of tools for making decisions. And so here's the question for you is that if you don't do this stuff, how do your kids learn? Right? So when you're making a decision, here's the other wild thing about it, is that when you're making a decision and your kid's watching you make a decision, what can they observe? They can see you thinking, right? <laughs> Maybe. But you have to open that up for them, especially for older kids. It's saying, you know, this is what I really want to do, and this is what I'm thinking of. These are some <coughs> options that I'm considering. And really talking that, that process through with them. Open up, open up the veil. Yes, please. I think the other really important piece of that is that through the Lord of Prayer, and then you say, and if it wasn't the right decision, it's okay. Yeah. It's not going to be in the world. We, we try to do what we thought God wanted us to do, and then we're going to try again. Yeah. Because I think that sometimes can lead to perfectionism. I have to always make the right decision every time. I love that. I love that. What, what she just said, for some of you that might not have heard it, is that, is that what you're saying is that you're, in a sense, you're committing it to the Lord, and when it's not working out, you're, you're okay with that. You're okay with things failing. You're okay with understanding that I made that decision with the best information I had then, and I learned something. I learned something. Project Pass just had a fundraiser, and it was demoralizing. Um, it was a country cross concert, so we had some, some people singing some gospel music and some bluegrass, and, and it was a, a beautiful violin um, and, and guitar concert that hardly anyone showed up to. Demoralizing. It's just so frustrating. But you know what I'm thankful for this? Is that a board member wanted to do a concert, she planned the concert, she funded the concert, she did it, and we're one year ahead now for next year. We learned stuff and now we can make adjustments. Where if we were doing it the other way of waiting for it to be perfect, we'd still be waiting, right? We went through a fast learning curve and we said, okay, that's some good stuff, that's some bad stuff, we'll try it this way. And so yeah, that's fantastic is being able to learn from stuff. Um, winning well, that's one thing that we have to say is that if you are training your kids in this life-ready kids stuff, they will win a lot. And really teaching them how to win well is, is probably one of the most important things. How to be gracious, how to understand that everything's a team sport, um, that they don't become all, all haughty um, and, and proud through, through, the, through success. And if you think about it, success is probably one of the most dangerous things we can experience, isn't it? You know, success that isn't God-founded, that's, that's done with a weak character, can really cause lots of problems. You know, another one that we say is losing without being a loser. Getting back to that is that um, what you find out is that, that some of the most successful people have gone through a lot of mistakes. I had a, a meal with um, the Canadian team basketball coach, and he also was a Portland Blazer coach, former Raptors head coach. And I think he's, I don't know where he moved to right now, but he's a big basketball player and, and a couple of his teammates that had played in the NBA at the same time that Jordan was playing. And so we're eating, imagine me and these big guys, right? 
And I asked a question, why is it that some guys can miss a shot and get up and, and next day take other shots? And why some guys miss a shot and they go into a slump? And he said a lot of it has to do with just this ability of losing well without letting it define you. Without letting it define you. Okay, thank you. So, lots of information at Today's Family Experience. It's our blog that I try to keep up on blog and podcast. Um, what I will say is that um, some of you have been taking pictures, slides. If you go to this, this, if you have phones with texting ability and you type in MICAMP to the number 44222, I know it sounds like a ridiculous number. Right here it says text safe, but actually right here, write in MICAMP. You'll get all the materials that we're doing at this camp meeting, all the slides, all the book stuff, as well as some um, other resources. And so with that, um, we'll see you tomorrow. Yes, MI Camp to 44222. Yes. Yep. And so right up here is I have a sign up. Um, all you have to do is write your name, preferred um, time that you'd like to meet. Write your cell phone if you could or email um, just so I have an ability to get a hold of you. And if you are interested in, in texting or calling me, let me just give you my cell phone number. Um, so you can get a hold of me. If it's kid-related, we can talk here, but I'm going to push you toward our admissions department as we get further down that process. Um, but if you need to text, get a hold of me during camp meeting, 360-690-5539. So 360-690-5539. I'd love to talk to you about what's going on in your families, grandkids, church, any of those kind of things. But let me pray with you, and we'll let you get on with your day. Uh, Father, we just thank you for, um, for life. Father, you've given us the responsibility of kids. And in that moment, Father, we just feel inadequate. It's heavy. We feel fear. We're not sure how to respond. But Father, thank you for the reminder that, that um, you're with us every single step of the way, that fear is not our path. But instead, Father, through boldness through you, that we can really call our kids into life. Father, I just pray for each parent that's here during this camp meeting. We just ask for amazing times of connection, and we just want to praise you in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.